Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4 as we continue our journey through this incredible gospel. By way of introduction this morning, before we read the passage, um, sometimes uh, after the sermon on Sunday morning, people may come up and have questions or discussion about certain things that were said which we welcome and encourage, or during the week I'll get a question in an email or something like that. And so a very good question was asked last week out of our discussion as we were talking about repentance during the course of the, uh, the study in, in Matthew chapter 3. And the question was specifically around, you know, so how exactly do we repent and uh, how do we overcome those repetitive issues where we repent and yet we, we seem to just continually have this sin issue in our lives. And I have a couple of things to share with you about that. <clears throat> if you turn over to uh, Romans chapter 7, if you'd like to turn there, you don't have to, I'll read it to you. But as you, if you were to read this chapter here, it describes, Paul describes for us that struggle we have between the flesh and the spirit and the desire to do what is right and to honor God and to follow him and you know to confess our sin and you know in an ideal world what we'd like to have happen is uh, I confess my sin of pride and uh, walk away from it and it's done with but we know that's not the case Uh, we sin continually don't we and in fact the scriptures help us understand that on this side of heaven there will always be a struggle between the flesh and the spirit. But at the end of chapter 7 of Romans, he says, uh, so I should, wish I could read the whole thing. Verse 21, For I, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, meaning my body, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into a captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So there's a struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And there's this thing called the process of sanctification that we are going through once we come to Christ and we believe in Christ and, uh, you know, we make that initial repentance and turn from our wicked ways to turn to him. There's still a struggle that goes on because as long as we are in these bodies, Romans 8 gives us some understanding on this. We are subject to the things of this world and we long for Along with creation, we groan in our spirits for the day when we will be redeemed, when the, when the flesh will be redeemed. And, and, and Romans tells us that we, have, we are redeemed people, redeemed beings, living in unredeemed flesh. And so that is the struggle. And so thus the process of sanctification. To sanctify means to be set apart. And so once we believe in Christ, we're saved. That's a settled issue by the blood of Christ. But now as we live out our days uh, of life here on the earth, we will always have a struggle between the flesh and the spirit. But the thing for us is to understand is that as we walk along in life, hopefully uh, that struggle is maybe diminishing over time as we grow more uh, in our uh, knowledge and our, our understanding of God's word and the application of truth to our lives. But we need to understand we can't do it on our own. We need the, the power of the Holy Spirit. But something else that we need that we often neglect in the church, and by church I mean capital C, church, is the support of fellow pilgrims, the support of our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is why small groups are so good. To be in a Bible study with men or women or, or discussion groups or, or have a prayer partner, you know, someone you can call and say, look, I'm struggling, I'm wrestling, I'm you know, I'm having, a, I'm having a bad day. I'm having a tough time with these issues in my life. And to know that as believers in Christ, we are not here to, uh, you know, telegraph one another's sin and struggles. We're here to love one another, to encourage one another, to support one another. So again, just from that question about repentance, you know, repentance is an ongoing thing. 
There's the repentance when we come to Christ, but then there's this ongoing repentance that happens in our lives as we continue to walk through life. So I hope that is helpful to you. And if not, let me know. We can talk about it more. But um, just wanted to try and encourage you with that. And it was a great question. And um, whenever we get one question, you can rest assured there's others thinking about and wrestling with the same issues. So, you know, the, the enemy likes to make us think that we're the only one, right, dealing with something. But that's not true. Uh, so let's uh, turn to Matthew chapter 4 now and get into the study. We're going to read the first 11 verses and just focus on that this morning. So Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning you, and in their hands they bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone." Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And you might note out there in your margin, test. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Lord, would you give understanding to the reading of your word, and would you grant your servants that we would draw near to you this morning and receive from you the manna from heaven that you have intended. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue to go through this gospel, uh, I always want to point you to the other gospels as well and to what they have to say about this same event. In fact, last week I actually committed the sin of omission, not intentionally. I had mentioned to you the parallel passages in Mark 1 and Luke 3, but I neglected to mention to you that in John chapter 1, a good portion of John chapter 1, there's John's account also of Jesus's coming to be baptized and starting his ministry. So uh, again, you know, uh, Mark 1, Luke 3, John chapter 1 for for sort of a parallel passage to Matthew chapter 3. For Matthew chapter 4, we have uh, just Mark chapter 1, a couple of verses. Mark 1, uh, 12 and 13 covers the temptation of Jesus in two verses. And then in Luke chapter 4, 1 through 13 is Luke's parallel account to this same account that we have just read. So we come to this situation called the temptation of Jesus. In fact, we are told in Mark's gospel, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and there he was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan and was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. So Mark tends to give us a sort of a broader view saying that the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness, that Satan was there testing him in some way, basically the whole time that he was out there to just seek the Father and to fast and to tune his heart to what God had for him in his ministry as he was beginning it. Then in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now remember, in the end of the previous chapter, we saw, whereas Jesus came up out of the baptismal waters, it says the, the Spirit fell on him like a dove, and then the voice from heaven, God the Father saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And now we're told that uh, by Luke's account, that what happened at that event is that Jesus did not only have the Spirit coming upon him, but he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And it says he returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. 
in verse 2 says, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. So Luke also gives us an account saying that during that 40-day period, Satan was there just haranguing the Lord Jesus and, you know, uh, there needling him for, for that whole time. So back to Matthew's gospel, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So one thing that ought to catch our eye right off the bat is that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the Spirit of God led him into that, that he would be tested, that he would sort of go head to head with Satan. And you know, Satan wants us to think, and he's always wanted us, meaning the followers of Jesus and people in general, to think that he and Jesus are sort of equals. And it's sort of like right now we have the playoffs going on in the NFL, that we have two equals meeting in battle and one will come out the victor. But that's not true, is it? Jesus is the Son of God. Satan is a created being. Satan can no, never win or overwhelm Jesus. And this passage will show us that Jesus in his flesh stood up to Satan, and it shows us how he stood up to Satan. And as we go through today, we'll talk about the purpose. Why did the Lord lead and allow his son to go through temptation or testing by the devil? Now, temptation is a certainty for all of us, yet Jesus' temptation, as we shall see, was more severe than what we will go through. It was more severe because he was tempted directly by the devil himself. While we contend mainly with lesser demons, it was also more severe because there is a sense in which temptation is relieved when we give in to it, isn't there? But Jesus never yielded. Therefore, he bore levels of temptation that we will never know by experience. In other words, Jesus never ever once gave in to temptation. We may, may be growing in our ability to resist temptation by the power of the Holy Spirit and the strength of the Word of God. But we all know, if we're honest with ourselves, that we do routinely give in to temptation, don't we? Maybe the temptation is as simple as food. Maybe it's TV, but maybe it's more difficult things. Maybe it's more like vices of the flesh that involve things like alcohol or drugs or, or even sex and those kinds of things. And it says that in verse 2 of Matthew 4, when Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. So during this time of fasting, where Jesus deliberately set aside time to go out into the desert and to seek the Lord, we are told in those other gospels that Satan was there needling him and tempting him and testing him. One thing we should notice about Satan is that he's an opportunist. And he comes at our lowest point. He comes in our weakest moment. And certainly he did that for Jesus. And it would seem that by the gospel accounts that were given of these questions that Satan asked Jesus, is that he came to him at his lowest point. Though I don't know if any of you have, you know, hypoglycemia where, you know, maybe just before a meal you sort of crash. I'm not saying you're diabetic, but, you know, sometimes it happens to me and you just kind of get because you're not eating, you get a little depressed or you get a little down and it's like you just need a little something to get you boosted and get you going, right? Well, imagine fasting for 40 days. We know, humanly speaking, that the, the physiology of fasting is the first three to five days are pretty tough, but somewhere around days five through eight, we start to sort of walk out of it and the whole issue of food kind of vanishes and the body can not go very long without water, but it can go up to 40 days without food. But there, your body reaches a point where it begins to get hungry again after that long period of fasting. And the experts say when you reach that point in time and you, your hunger comes back, that if you don't eat at that point, your body will begin essentially to eat itself. And so Jesus had now reached that point. He had reached that point of 40 days of fasting. And it says afterward he was hungry. Now, the issue of fasting 
I'd like to share with you Isaiah 58. You're free to turn there if you like. I'm just going to share a couple of verses with you. I think this is an often misunderstood issue within the church of Jesus Christ. And sometimes people fast thinking, well, it's a great way to lose weight. Well, maybe. Uh, I'm not a doctor. I'm not going there. But biblically speaking, we fast so that we may seek the Lord. Isaiah 58 is kind of the definitive passage. Let me share it with you, beginning in verse 3. It says, Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? So one of the reasons people fast sometimes is sort of this issue of penance or, you know, kind of flogging themselves, as it were. And it says, In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and you exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. So there's a key reason why we fast. It's to seek the Lord and just to hear his voice and to make our voice heard to him. Is it a fast that I have chosen? A day for man to afflict his soul? The obvious answer is no. Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this as a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? And then you get the answer in verse 6. Is this not the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke. You see, fasting is meant to get us in tune with God and even to show us our own sin. In fact, you might say fasting is sort of a tool of repentance, of bringing us to that place where we seek the Lord and we clearly understand his heart. And as we fast, I would always say that we should be reading God's word. You know, we don't just fast from food and sit there and waste away and, you know, have uh, mental lapses and, and all those things. No, when we fast, we seek the Lord. And we understand that Jesus was our example and is our example in everything. Hebrews 5.8 tells us of Jesus, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So even at the very beginning of his ministry as Jesus is fasting and seeking the Lord as he begins that period in his life, that intensive three-year period where he was ministering as the Son of God, as the, as the Savior, he began by fasting, he began by being tempted, and he began by learning obedience through the things which he suffered. In verse 3, it says, Now, when the tempter came to him, you might want to underline or circle that word when. You may not like it, but it's there for our benefit because we do get tempted. We do face temptation. Sometimes our temptations are just what John calls the world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil, of course, is a formidable foe, but there's also the temptation of the world, the temptation of the flesh. And in fact, John also says it's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And this temptation that Satan issues to Jesus, it says, now when the tempter came to him, he said... If you are the Son of God, other translations say since, since you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, Jesus was hungry, right? We know that. Satan obviously knew that he was hungry. And in this moment, what Satan is doing is tempting him to serve the flesh, to focus on himself and his, to tempt him with selfishness. Now, certainly we know from John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana, that Jesus turned water into wine. Surely he can handle turning stones into bread. We know a little bit later, we'll come to this in Matthew 14, that Jesus fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. So he certainly knows how to multiply food to feed many people. And again, he did the same thing with the 4,000 a little bit later. So Jesus's ability to turn bread, excuse me, to turn stones into bread, uh, no problem, right? Jesus can handle that. But instead of responding to Satan in his temptation, in his flesh, he says in verse 4, but he answered, that is Jesus answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
Now Satan comes, he twists, he finds us in our weakness, and he, he's looking for a way to get our eyes off of the Lord and onto ourselves or onto our circumstances. When Jesus answered him, notice Jesus answered him with the word of God. And so let me say at the outset, because Jesus will answer three times with the word of God, that you and I need to know the word of God. I'm not saying that we need to be scholars, that we need to be able to pass a seminary or a Bible college test. But our familiarity with the Lord and the strength of our walk depends on our being in this word, this book. This is the primary way we have fellowship with God. This is the primary way we learn and grow. And so Jesus had at his disposal the word of God. In fact, we know Jesus, uh, I think it's Luke's gospel, tells us that when Jesus, when he was 12 years old, when his parents were in Jerusalem for a feast, as they uh, were beginning their journey back to their homeland, they discovered that in the, the crowd, Jesus wasn't there, and they had to go back and find him. And when they went back to find him, they found him discussing the scriptures and debating with the teachers in the temple. And they, they were more concerned, you know, didn't you understand that you caused us to worry and you gave us great uh, stress over the fact that we couldn't find you? He said, well, didn't you know that I must be in my father's house and be about my father's business? And that's where I am. And so it should be for us that we are daily spending time in God's word, that we might have weapons and tools that uh, would be at our disposal that we can answer the enemy when he comes or even when our own thoughts and our own heart fail us and deceive us that we can give ourselves, if you will, self-talk from the word of God. Jesus said it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see, God had one son without sin, but he never had a son without temptation. Let's understand something about temptation, folks. It is not wrong to be tempted. Every single person is tempted. The issue is never in being tempted. The issue is in giving in to the temptation. This temptation, it would seem that Satan, and he always operates according to these methods, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He is coming to Jesus on the basis of the appeal of the lust of the flesh. Boy, you're really hungry right now. You could use your superpowers, Jesus, to just create some bread right now out of that stone and begin to satisfy that hunger. Now, we should consider the circumstances that preceded Jesus being tempted and being led into the wilderness by the Spirit. You see, he was in an especially devout frame of mind before his temptation. He had come and John had baptized him. The Holy Spirit had fallen upon him. His father had, had voiced from heaven for all to hear, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He was filled by the Holy Spirit. We're told in Luke's gospel, he went out to the desert to seek the Lord. So Jesus has spent this intensive time in seeking the Lord. So he was in this devout frame of mind before his temptation. In fact, you could say he had spent those 40 days while fasting his flesh, but strengthening his spirit. He was engaged in an act of public obedience to his father's will before his temptation, meaning he went and he was baptized. He was in an exceedingly humble frame of mind before his temptation because he submitted to the will of the father and publicly was baptized that it might fulfill all righteousness. He was blessed by a heavenly assurance of his sonship before his temptation because God had said those things to him. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So he was completely separated. He was a man who was on a spiritual high, who as it were, were was on a spiritual mountaintop in his walk with God, but his flesh was weak. And so in that context, Satan comes to him. Now, Jesus, when he quoted here about Man lives uh, by, uh, not by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Jesus was quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And in Deuteronomy 8, if you were to go there and read it, and I, I printed all this out in my notes because I always do these things to keep myself, hopefully, on the right track. 
You see, Satan is going to graduate from this temptation, number one. In two and three, he's going to begin to quote Scripture to Jesus. He's going to begin to twist the Scriptures to Jesus. And it's always important for us to know and to understand that when we quote Scripture, especially when we just like to quote a favorite verse, that we understand the context. Why? Because we can take anything out of context and make a case for it. And Satan does that. When Jesus quotes scripture, he quotes it in context. And if you go read Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 6, you'll see the context in verse 3, where it says, uh, Deuteronomy 8, 3, So he humbled you, that is God, allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but, by, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. There's, the context is God feeding the nation of Israel in the wilderness, where God provided for them in the daily manna that God rained down on them every morning, where God provided for them, God met their needs. In fact, later, we know that Jesus was ministering and his disciples, I believe it was the woman at the well in John 4, and they went into the town to get bread and uh, Jesus was there ministering because he had a divine appointment with this woman and uh, they knew that Jesus was hungry that they hadn't eat for, eaten for a long time so they come back and they begin to hear about what happened and they said well here don't you want something to eat and he's like yeah I'm all set and they're like Where, aren't you hungry and he says I have food to eat of which you know not where the Lord just meets our needs and so Jesus quotes this to Satan and here's what he's essentially saying, if I may paraphrase what he's saying, that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. The word of God should be more precious to us than food. That's incredibly convicting, isn't it? How often do I put my needs before, my, my personal needs, my physical needs before the Lord? In fact, Warren Wiersbe said, when we put our physical needs ahead of our spiritual needs, we sin. When we allow circumstances to dictate our actions instead of following God's will, we sin. And this is one of the things that we need to learn. This is a part of our sanctification process, learning to listen to the Lord and to submit to Him first before we take care of our own needs, our own issues. You know, we want to follow the Lord. And so the word of God should be more precious to us than food itself. In fact, I might have shared this before, but the Chinese Christians have a saying, and this is what they teach the new believers as they come along in communist China. Remember that they are in the underground church. They have a saying and they ask their disciples to write it down. And, and here's the saying. No Bible, no breakfast. What an interesting way to apply that scripture. Well, continuing on in verse 5, Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, highest point of the city of Jerusalem. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, or since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, because that's what Jesus said, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands you, uh, they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. The second temptation, an appeal to the pride of life. You know, Jesus, you're the son of God, right? You could command a stone to become bread. But here as we're on the pinnacle of the temple, you could just jump off, and angels would come to your rescue. And they would bear you up and set you down gently on the ground. And wouldn't that be a cool thing to prove that you're really the Son of God? Well, now Satan, in his resorting to quoting Scripture, takes Scripture, quotes it exactly, but quotes it out of context. Now, Psalm 91, where Satan quoted this Scripture, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but if you, if you go and read it, beginning in Psalm 91, verse 1, it's a beautiful psalm that talks about God being our refuge and our fortress. And if you've ever read it, you'll recognize this. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty, that God with his wings will protect us. What a wonderful psalm to read in times of depression and doubt and despair. 
And as you read that psalm, you, you know, verse 4, He shall cover you with his feathers. Under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and your buckler. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. And then verse 9, the, verse that comes right, the verses that come before what he quoted. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. And then Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12 are the two verses that Satan quoted. You see, Satan borrowed our Lord's weapon and said it is written, but he didn't use the sword of the Spirit lawfully. It was not in the nature of the false fiend to quote correctly. He left out the necessary words, in all thy ways. Thus he made the promise say what the truth never suggested. The text is falsely quoted because the devil left out those words and he used it to test Jesus, to test God. He wanted to get Jesus to test God. And this was not the way of the Savior. God had never promised nor ever given any protection of angels in sinful and forbidden ways, meaning to tempt God. This text is wrongly applied, another person said, because it was not used to teach or encourage, but instead to deceive. Making this word a promise to be fulfilled upon Christ's neglect of his, his duty, uh, ending the promise, excuse me, extending the promise of special providence as to the dangers into which men voluntarily throw themselves. Satan was tempting Jesus to tempt God. And certainly as you read Psalm 91, you get the idea that God's saying, look, I, I will protect you. But when Satan is tempting Jesus, and thus by extension when he tempts us to do something, to tempt God, to say, look, God said he'd take care of you, right? Well, then throw all caution to the wind and go play the lottery. Go to Las Vegas and gamble. God will protect you. Go do crazy things with your life. God will protect you. That's the way of Satan. But sadly, many are willing to believe anyone who quotes from the Bible today. A preacher can pretty much say whatever he wants if he quotes a few proof texts, and people will assume that he really speaks from the Bible. It is important for each Christian to know the Bible for themselves and not to be deceived by someone who quotes the Bible but not accurately or with correct application. Paul told Timothy, study to show yourself approved so that you may rightly divide the word of truth, meaning to correctly understand it and teach it and apply it. You see, we have to be like the Bereans of Acts chapter 17, verse 11, where it says that these were more noble and that they took what they heard Paul saying and they went and they searched the scriptures to see if what he said was true. And that's the way we need to be because our enemy, the evil one, has people. He has allies in the church who listen to him and who twist the scriptures for their own vile purposes. So Jesus said in verse 7 to the evil one, It is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. This time quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and you open the context and you read it, it's a passage where the Lord is telling his people, you shall not go after any other gods. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and take oaths in his name. You shall, um, for the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. In Deuteronomy 6:16, 6, where Jesus quoted, you shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa, where the people tempted the Lord by rebelling against him. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, his testimonies and his statutes with which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that all may be well with you and that you may go in and possess the good land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. You see, Jesus handled the word of God accurately and in context. In verse 8, again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. 
This temptation is an appeal to the lust of the eyes. So the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes. You see, we need to know this. Why? Because these are the same schemes. These are the same tactics that Satan uses with us. He will find that weakness, that chink in our armor. What is it that most easily entices us? Is it the lust of the eyes? For most men, it is indeed the lust of the eyes. What about the lust of the flesh? Certainly we all have that. What about the pride of life? Certainly we all have pride. And if Satan can find a way to appeal to that particular aspect of weakness in our lives, he will do that. And he was attempting to do that to our our Lord, to our Savior, Jesus. And he appealed to Jesus on the basis of power. And he says, look at all these kingdoms. If you'll bow down to me, I'll give these to you now. Now, what was Satan doing in the grand scheme of things? You see, God the Father had already promised the kingdoms of the earth to the Son, had he not? We know as we go on and we read the rest of Scripture that Jesus will one day at the end of the book of Revelation, he will come in his second coming in that great battle, the battle of Armageddon. And there will be this war, this final battle between good and evil, between Jesus and Satan. And Jesus will win, he will triumph, he will overcome. And as that happens, then the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ will come. And then as we go to the end, he will have his church his bride come and sit down at the marriage feast of the lamb. And Jesus will once and for all rule and reign over all of the earth as it was intended all the way back at the garden of Eden. So God has already promised all of these things to the son, but you see Satan coming in saying, right now these things are given to me. And you say, well, what's going on? I mean, certainly Jesus knows Satan can't lie to him, right? Well, here's some things that we know about Satan. John 12, 31, Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. You see, since the fall of man back in the garden of Eden until the time when the Lord says enough is enough, Satan has a certain rule and influence over this world. John 14, 30, again, Jesus says, for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul wrote, Whose minds the God of this age, which is a reference to Satan, has blinded. So he's the ruler of this world. He's the God of this age. And in Ephesians 2, 2, it says, in, once you, in, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience referring to the fact that Satan has an influence over the world. We just read in 2 Corinthians 4, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. So Satan has an influence. He's the ruler of this world. He's the God of this age. He's the prince of the power of the air. And as Satan comes to tempt Jesus with these things, this is a revealing insight into the heart of Satan. Worship and recognition are far more precious to him than the possession of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. You see, he wanted Jesus to bow down to him. And he knew that if he could convince Christ in that moment of weakness to do so. You see, in essence, what he's doing, he's saying, Jesus, you don't need to go to the cross. You don't need to do things according to God's plan. I can give you the kingdoms of the world. I have them. God's given them into my hand right now. That was true. But if you'll avoid the cross and allow me to give it to you and all you have to do is worship me, then you can have it now. And isn't that one of the greatest temptations of the enemy? Now. Aren't we the microwave generation? Aren't we upset if we can't have something in 60 seconds? I mean, right around the corner here, we have fast food, right? If it takes more than five minutes in the drive-through somewhere, we get upset. And here in COVID, hasn't our patience been tested if you go through a drive-thru? It can take 15, 20 minutes sometimes to go through a drive-thru because you can't go in the building. Now is Satan's word. It's the way he likes to tempt us. And in fact, back in Isaiah chapter 14, Satan said, I will ascend into heaven. 
I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And his temptation was to get Jesus to worship him. And Jesus, thankfully, by the grace of God, says in verse 10, Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Again, from Deuteronomy 6, as well as Deuteronomy 10, Jesus says, Deuteronomy 6, 13, You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him, and shall take oaths in his name. Deuteronomy 10, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him. And you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great things and these awesome things which your eye has seen. Jesus tells Satan to get away and to stop messing with me. You know, the first commandment in the Ten Commandments, and you can find these in Exodus chapter 20 if you would like to go there and read them. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus said, according to the word of God, according to the commandments, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Brings up the question for us, whom do we serve? What do we serve? That question about man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God begins to chip away at the heart of the issue for us. In fact, in Mark's gospel, chapter 12, he says, Jesus answered him, answering one of the people who was asking him the question, what's the the greatest commandment, teacher? As they were condescending to him. And he says, the first commandment, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. You see, Jesus took a quote from Deuteronomy, but as we go and we look in Exodus and we look even in Mark's gospel and Jesus goes back again to Deuteronomy, he's quoting the fact that God is number one, that God is the highest priority. And I find, at least for me, I don't know about you, but I have trouble with priorities. I struggle with keeping the Lord first. I struggle with making him the most important person in my life. You see, I always tell people when I'm doing marriage counseling that you have a walk with God now before you marry this person. After you get married, that should still be number one. Your spouse does not become number one. They may want you to, be, to think of them that way, but that's, that's usurping the role and the place of God. You see, we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, not our wife, not our husband. Yes, we are to love them, but in the proper place, in the proper order. We love God first. And if we love God first, and if we love God in this way, that enables us, that feeds our ability to love that person the way they should be loved. That enables us to submit to them the way we should submit to them. That enables us to serve them the way we should serve them. Because we have it right. Because the second commandment is, and love your neighbor as yourself, isn't it? But that comes after the first, which is to love the Lord your God. And like Jesus said, worship the Lord and him only. You know, if we haven't figured it out by now that Jesus' use of the word of God, he's elevating the word of God to such a place that we need to understand that the word of God is so important. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us this, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and of marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. You see, sometimes we need counseling, don't we? The place I turn for counseling first is the Word of God before I phone a friend or I call the counselor. I'm not saying don't phone a friend, don't call a counselor. Yes, we need that, right? I just talked earlier about needing the 
the body of Christ. But first we go to the Word of God. Why? Because the Word of God counsels us. The Word of God tells us what we need to know. It tells us how to counsel ourselves. As we read the Word of God, basically we get the answers to our questions before we ask them. In Psalm 138, there's this amazing verse. In Psalm 138 too, I'll read it to you. The psalmist wrote, I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and for your truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. God himself elevating his word to a place of great importance. And time doesn't permit me to mention Psalm 119 which is where God himself exalts his word so that we understand the importance of his word. In fact, he says there in Psalm 119, 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy three sixteen, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You may say, but I don't know how and all that. Well, the word of God equips you. The word of God is our instruction. Verse 11, then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So in that moment, because Jesus resisted temptation and waited for the timing of God, the angels came and ministered to him in his weakness. Now in Luke's gospel, Luke 4.13, at the end of this ordeal of being tempted, it says, now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. See, just because we successfully resist temptation, praise God. That doesn't mean he's done. As long as we're on this side of heaven, as long as we are in this body, the enemy will be there to enforce the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the temptations will come. They will be continuous. They may come in, you know, portions. They may come, you know, you know sometimes my grandmother used to have this expression that said, when it rains, it pours, right? When sometimes things happen and it just, like, it just seems like all hell breaks loose, Right? But then we have these periods of time where we go along and we sort of become lulled to sleep. Everything's going fine. I haven't bounced any checks lately, paying the bills on time. Seem to, my health's okay. Things are going along. Kids are okay. No, but nothing's blown up lately. Nothing's burned. Toaster didn't blow up. And we, we get lulled to sleep. But the devil so often waits for an opportune time to come and to hit us. Jesus successfully resisted the devil. And the key word there is resist. 1 Peter 5 tells us, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. See, there's the the devil looking for an opportune time. But it says, resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Yet another reason why we need the fellowship of the body of Christ. So that we understand that the issues that we're facing, the temptations that we're dealing with are not unique to us. That's what the devil wants us to think. It's like, you know, you're the only one struggling with that issue. So just keep it to yourself and don't get yourself embarrassed. No, we're all struggling with the same things, people. Maybe there's a uniqueness in the way Satan's applying the temptation to us, but it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's what we're struggling with. Maybe my lusts are different than your lusts. Maybe my pride is manifested in a different way than yours is, but we still struggle with the same issues. You see, Jesus did not need to be tempted to help him grow. We need that. Instead, he endured temptation so that he could identify with us. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says this. This is why Jesus had to endure these things. Therefore, Hebrews 2.17, Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, meaning us, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has 
suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. You see, Jesus can come to us in our temptation and help us. He can say, and he's the only one who can say, I know exactly how you feel. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, the temptation of Jesus is here to encourage us to come to the throne of grace. Why? Because he submitted to temptations in like manner that you and I have, except he was tempted with things far greater. How many of us are tempted with absolute power over the whole world? None of us have ever been tempted with that, have we? I haven't. I'm usually tempted with, do I have power to change lanes without hurting somebody on the highway? But I'm not tempted with that kind of power that Jesus was tempted with by the tempter himself. You may remember later with Peter, Luke 22, Jesus said to Peter, as Peter was boldly proclaiming, oh, Lord, these might deny you, but I'll never deny you, Lord. I'll be here. I'll be here to the end. You know, you can always count on me. I'm your number one guy. Luke 22, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. The temptation of the devil, in fact, I don't know about Peter, but it should have frightened him that the devil had actually gone to Jesus to ask for permission to get to him. And certainly the the devil does that just to encourage you with this. As we think about Job, when Satan wanted permission from the Lord to test and to tempt Job, he had to go before the throne of God to get that permission. So we have at least two passages that tell us that this seems to be the way it is in the heavenly places where the enemy has to get permission from God to to do testing and tempting. And the Lord said to Peter there in Luke 22, but I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. In other words, Jesus knew he was going to fail. He knew he was going to succumb to the temptation. And as we read about what happened in the testings of Peter, uh, he became afraid even of a little servant girl who said to him by the fire in the middle of the night, aren't, aren't you one of his disciples? And Peter vehemently denied it and said, no, of course not. I don't know that man. I'm just here trying to get warm. Leave me alone. And then Peter heard the cock crow. And he remembered the words of the Lord. And John's gospel tells us that Jesus looked across the courtyard and caught Peter's eye. And he went out and he wept bitterly. And he failed miserably. But Jesus said, I've prayed for you. He told him ahead of time that your faith should not fail. You may fail, but your faith shouldn't fail. 2 Corinthians 10, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You see, God has given us weapons of warfare. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul tells us Satan is able to transform himself into an angel of light. In other words, Satan doesn't always come to us in his red suit with his pointy tail and his pitchfork. He comes to us disguised as an angel of light. In Ephesians 6, Paul says, speaking of the armor of God, that we should be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, and that we should put on the whole armor of God for a purpose. He says that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, the schemes. 
It's interesting that word wiles or schemes, depending on how your translation put it, the Greek word is methodia or the methods of the devil, the cunning arts, the deceit, the craft, the trickery. You see, Satan doesn't play fair. In fact, I think we can safely say that Satan is a terrorist and he will do whatever he can to make us think that he has absolute power and control over us. And like Jesus, he will tempt us saying, I have power that you don't. And I can do things that God has enabled me to do. Paul said again in 2 Corinthians 11, we should be aware lest Satan should take advantage of us. And he says, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So he talked about Satan's schemes, his methods, His devices are mental, a mental perception, a thought. So you see, Satan comes at us in the physical realm and he comes at us in the mental realm. But what should be our response to temptations? Well, it should certainly be the same as Jesus. It should be to know the word of God and to be able to stand against the schemes and the wiles and the trickery of the devil with the word of God. But you know, something that we should be aware of and standing against temptation is our attitude. James 1, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. We can all grow in patience, can't we? But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The word perfect could also be translated mature. So you see, God allows the trials to come to grow us, to help us understand that in the midst of pain and suffering and difficulty and temptation and trial, that we can have joy. Why? Because the fruit of the Spirit is joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. God wants to work the Spirit into our lives. James 1, 12, a little further down, blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own lusts, his own desires, And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Same thing Paul said, don't be ignorant of his devices. Then finally in James 4, 6, but he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So again, one of the ways Satan tempts us is through pride. He says, therefore submit to God, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's what Jesus did. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts and your minds, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Jesus said, you shall worship and serve the Lord God. Him only shall you worship. How do we deal with temptation? Same way Jesus did. But we deal with it by reading the word. We deal with it by having relationships in the body of Christ. And we deal with it by praying for one another and by encouraging one another and understanding that we all go through the same kinds of things. The manifestation of the trial or the temptation may be different, but the type is the same. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's the world, the flesh, the devil. These are the things that Satan uses. He's never gotten more creative than that in all of the years that history has been ticking by. And he will never do it in any other way. God, it seems, has limited him to those methods. And so now we understand those things. So let's understand and keep first things first. Let's keep our eyes on the Lord. Let's worship and serve him only. Let's seek the Lord. And if we are feeling weak, let's call on a, on a fellow brother or sister and ask them to pray with us and ask them to help us. And let's get our nose in the book. Let's look at the word of God. 
and let the Word of God help us. This is why these daily you know, Bible reading programs are so helpful for us. It just keeps us in the Word on a, on a daily basis. And even if we fall behind or we don't get as far as we want, don't let that condemn you. Just keep going. Don't worry about the calendar. Don't worry about checking the box. Just keep going. And over time, things that didn't make sense in the beginning will make sense. Because something I read over here, it's like reading a book, right? The, the plot develops. The characters develop. Things come out. And something I read in chapter 2 now makes sense in chapter 10. And that's the way it is as we read God's Word and let God's Word strengthen us. Remember, God says He exalted His Word above His name. He's given us this for a reason that we might love him, that we might serve him. So Lord, thank you this morning for the example of your son, Jesus. Thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to consider the issue of temptation. And Lord, may we draw near to you. Lord, help us, strengthen us. And for the things that we're facing, the issues that we're handling, Lord, give us wisdom, give us encouragement, fill us with your spirit. And Lord, give us fellow travelers, fellow pilgrims who can come alongside and put their arm around us and encourage us and love us in the difficulties and the things that we face. Lord, as we come to your table now, would you be blessed, would you be glorified, would you be honored? May you remind us of the memorial of what you did for us on the cross, taking our sin, taking our shame and our suffering upon you. We deserved it, but you did it for us, that we might know you, that we might have a relationship with you. And you're the one who said, Jesus, as you prayed on that night before you were crucified. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Thank you, Lord, for that promise and for doing it all for us on the cross. And as we worship you now, would you be honored, Lord? May we grow. May we grow closer to you. May we, as it were, Lord, feel your arms drawing us close this morning. May we hear the voice of our Father. In Jesus' name, amen. As we worship, uh, get your elements ready. There's some on the back table back there. It's a combo unit with uh, the bread in the bottom, the cup in the top. Get ready for that and uh, go ahead and uh, grab it and, and wait for us. And after we sing the song, Pastor Mitch will come and lead us to the table.